welcome to we don't even have a name but welcome to our podcast i'm danny metzer i've got milo schindler with me here we're going to be talking about all things um basketball analytics basketball film and talk about how those two things can be meshed to better understand team dynamics how individual players uh, shape those dynamics and how our understanding of those concepts can potentially um, help us find solutions for teams or players to perform better. Maybe Milo can, you know, take the floor right now and kind of explain what he wants to get out of this. Yeah, I couldn't have, I couldn't have said it better. You really put the nail in the coffin right there. I, I think that what both of us share in common is that we like to look at the game of basketball from the standpoint of really trying to understand both the qualitative and the quantitative sides of it. We're very much in favor of an evidence-based approach for solving problems and for identifying them. And so I think what I'm really excited for and what I'm hoping to get out of this is to really take a deeper look at player value right now and throughout history and understanding how the game has changed in, in stylistic and uh, quantifiable ways in terms of the types of shots that teams are taking, the types of plays that they're prioritizing, the way that they build around star players, because we all know that the NBA is a league that's about superstar talent understanding how to optimize teams around that talent um, and how to pair stars with each other is really key to finding success and winning championships. That's something that I hope to understand at a deeper level. 100%. And um, one more thing that I want to add, I'm coming at this from the standpoint of somebody that trains basketball players. I run DM hoops on Instagram and in the past player development coaches, trainers, have, I think, underemphasized the value of data in basketball and how, you know, the data and statistics that we have available can inform decisions, both within the realm of team strategy, but also player optimization. So we can talk first about what analytics even are and why they're useful. I know we already, you know, briefly uh, touched on that, but Milo, maybe now give it definition for analytics that is, that is different from the narrow definitions that have been given for analytics in the past by people we see on TV or whatever the case may be. Yeah. So let's start with like the most macro definition of analytics that we can utilize. And I think that's just that analytics is a practical application of pattern recognition. So it's, it's going into the data and identifying patterns, discovering them, validating them, uh, looking for correlations between different variables, um, and then trying to interpret them in a way that allows us to make better decisions. And in the context of basketball, that means, um, you know, how we can understand what's, which types of players are going to provide us the best chance of scoring on, on certain types of possessions. You know, if, if we look at, if we narrow the data down to, to 
certain situations, like your team has 10 seconds left on the shot clock, the primary, um, you know, the primary offensive play has kind of broken down and you need someone to create a shot. Um, you know, we, we're going to look into the, the data and say, you know, which player on the court right now is sort of the most efficient at creating their shot in, in this type of a situation. And I, I you know, it, obviously the, the applications for this are pretty much endless. Yeah. And I love that you mentioned that last point because I think the issue in the past um, with, you know, some people and their perception of analytics is that, you know, like I, like I said earlier, I think um, some people's definitions of analytics and why they would therefore be useful are too narrow. We're looking at, um, you know, the, the goal should be to get very granular with it in that sense where we should be looking at what the team's best options are in very specific moments of the game. So the team's best shot in the first 14 seconds of the shot clock might not be the same as the team's best shot in the last 10 seconds of the shot clock, depending on their personnel, depending on what kind of style they play um, and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of um, what we're trying to change with this is get very, you know, into the nitty gritty about um, how, again, data can inform um, decisions um, that teams make and how, you know, data can also potentially inform people like me who are trying to, who, whose main goal is to help players get better. Right. And I think that, you know, when you're looking at how to improve as a player that is very context dependent and it's very, it's very situational. So the first thing that you have to approach is identifying um, the problem. So identifying situations in which the player is struggling or identifying opportunity costs um, because of certain tendencies they have. Maybe they have a tendency to force certain types of shots out of the pick and roll where maybe they can actually find a cutter or kick out for an open three. Understanding the situations, like the play types in which that player is struggling to provide uh, efficient offense. Obviously, it's a little bit harder to apply this type of data because with defense because there's not as much data collection to work with there but i think there's still some things that we can look at in terms of what field goal percentage players are allowing on different parts of the court um, and obviously you always need to supplement any kind of conclusions that you're making about um about a player or a team based on statistics with you know with a an argument that 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 really takes into account situational context. Um, and you can, you really can only get that from actually watching the games. Yeah, totally. Um, there's one thing that I, that I that we really wanted to talk about. And that was like, you know, 
we want to change the view that, that some people have of analytics. Like we, we talked about um, the video of Charles Barkley um, when he was on um, Inside the NBA and they were responding, this was like five years ago, and they were responding to a statement that Daryl Morey made um, about analytics. And he's, and as we all know, uh, Daryl Morey uh, was the GM of the Houston Rockets at the time. And he had this certain philosophy about how the Rockets can optimize their possessions by essentially restricting the amount of mid-range shots that they take and um, increasing, largely increasing the amount of three-point shots that they take, um, particularly, you know, um, ones that are created by James Harden um, or facilitated by Harden after he drives or what have you. And Barkley was talking about, you know, um, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna pull up the quotes right here because um, I think this is some important stuff that we, that we should clarify. And that um, I think, you know, are, is not necessarily a, a very uncommon take about analytics and data. So he, he said, I'm not worried about Daryl Morey. He's one of those idiots who believes in analytics. He went out and got James Harden and, and got Dwight Howard and is going to tell me that's analytics. Then he went out and got Trevor Ariza. Then he went out and got Josh Smith. And then he capped that off by saying, I always believed analytics was crap. So his, the, the basis of his argument seemed to me to be that the a really important, like the most important thing or, or the only thing that, that really matters essentially is the talent that uh, teams are able to, um, you know, assemble. And it's much less so about, um, you know, what kinds of, of shots the team takes and what their style is. And I think it's very fitting to talk about, um, you know, how the Lakers are playing, right? What we've seen from the Lakers in the right. first two games of the season, because I think it's very apparent just, just from watching it. I know it's very early. I understand that. Um, but we understand how people like Russell Westbrook play, um, you know, from the, from the 10 plus years uh, that they've played in the NBA and other veterans that, that are on their team, like Carmel Anthony and DeAndre Jordan and, how how they ultimately um, play together at, at the same time because it's not just about and we're gonna we're gonna talk about this but it's not just about how um, you know how good the players are at face value how much talent a team has at face value it's about how that talent meshes together and ends up you know creating possessions and on on defense how how they communicate with each other um, and how they, how they um, play to um, sort of force the offense into shots that they want them to take. Um, so I'm wondering if Milo, if you have any insight about that. Yeah. I mean, just to, to kind of address the, the argument that, that analytics doesn't work, which I think literally was the quote by, by Barkley, which was, yeah. um, which was reiterated by, and let, let, by let's Shaq be clear. as well. 
Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you need, you need look no further than just offensive efficiency over the past, um, you know, 18 years, exactly. um, to understand how profound of an impact the analytics movement and just, um, the, the advent of all this shot tracking data and, um, these frameworks for thinking about efficiency, just this whole conversation of efficiency, how much of an impact that has had, um, to kind of illustrate that, I just wanted to look at, um, actually pulled up on cleaning the glass, uh, the percentage league wide of all field goals that were attempted from three, um, in, in the 2003 to 04 season, it was 18% of all field goals, 18.3% of all attempted field goals were from three. Um, that figure has risen to 36.1% for the 2021 regular season. Um, so twice as many, uh, you know, twice as many threes relative to possessions uh, over an 18 or rather, you know, a 17 year span. That's a, just an unthinkable difference. And in that same amount of time, offensive efficiency has risen, um, by essentially 10 points per hundred possessions. So it was, it was, you know, the, the average offensive rating in 04 was 102.9. And that figure has risen to 112.3 in the 2021 season. So clearly there's a relationship between the volume of threes attempted and how efficient and your offense is likely to be. Um, and, yeah. and you know, that, that is, you know, one of the most sort of meta macro scale revelations that the NBA has kind of been awakened to over the past. Really, it's one of the most fundamental paradigm shifts um, in the history of basketball that, you know, this three-point shot that was essentially an afterthought when it was added to the game in, you know, whatever it was, 1979, I guess, um, is now really a staple of modern offenses and a shot that, that modern offenses prioritize and, and actually, like, actively seek to create on a possession-by-possession possession basis. It's what teams are looking to, to shoot. You know, if they can't get a shot at the rim, most likely they want to get a corner three. And, like, let's actually understand why that's the case intuitively. Because, I mean, let, I mean let's, just, let's just think about this logically, right? If, if players have the ability to shoot outside, and, and it was, you know, a, as the game as it was, you know, very early on in the development of uh, basketball and team strategy, um, you have to realize that it, it's, it, it's normal that, like, teams didn't realize this. But what we know now, just logically and intuitively, is if players are able to, to shoot from, from far out, 
um, versus, you know, not being able to shoot, uh, at not being able to shoot, um, from as far out, like in, in the mid range, um, we're talking about, uh, a difference of potentially five to 10 feet on average where, um, players line up, um, in their half court possessions that you're working with so much more space and, um, space is, is, is essential. Um, you know, we, we yes. know just, uh, it's common sense that, um, a, an uncontested shot is going to be easier to take than a contested shot. And so space is so critical. Um, and so it's from that perspective, it's easy to understand why, um, you know, t it, it sort of, the game sort of evolved and, um, because of that, because, um, you know, on average, um, players are, you know, a threat to shoot open three pointers, um, and defenders, you know, feel the need to, to, uh, to guard up that's so much more space you're working with. And um, that ultimately, you know, creates easier shots at the rim. And I think, you know, some people could argue like, um, you know, the change in offensive efficiency can be attributed to the change in rules. Hand checking, you know, getting rid of hand checking has had an influence on what offensive players are allowed to do um, when they attack. Um, but yeah. I think it's pretty, I think it's fair to say that like there's some combination of all of these things. Um, you know, it's actually, it's actually interesting on that point. Um, on the, you know, the, the point about spacing that you were making, first of all, I'll address that. Um, you know, that, that, that point is really borne out in the fact that finishing efficiency has actually risen by like 6%. Exactly. Since, since 2004. So in 20, in, you know, in 2004, um, shots at the rim converted at a 58.2% clip compared to last season where um, over 64% of shots at the rim um, were converted. So that's huge. Very ex extremely significant difference in the efficiency of, of finishes. Um, over that over that time period where a lot more threes are being taken and you know one more thing on the point that you know free throws are are accounting for this this different you know this this discrepancy in offensive efficiency um, between between you know the the 2000s or, or the, the 90s and today it's actually not true. You know, if we want to just keep using 2004 as the benchmark, um, per 100 possessions, 26.7 free throws attempted per game in 2004 compared to 21.9 in 2021. So it's actually five less free throws being attempted per game now than, you know, back in the, in the, uh, early 2000s and you know yeah if you look at some of these years in the mid 2000s like 2006 you have 28.8 2005 28.4 2007 28.1 they were taking a lot more free throws back then than they right. are now so it's not right. like you, 
it's not like players are just getting way more calls now than they used to. Exactly. I, I know for a fact, some people would expect, you know, some people would be surprised by that for sure. So we also wanted to talk about, because we, we also don't want to um, look at basketball purely through the lens of data and statistics. I think that some, there's a crowd of people that sort of fall into that trap too, where, um, you know, they, they, uh, they, they are under the impression that um, data can tell the full picture. We have to understand what, what could potentially be leading to the data that we see. And, you know, if you, if you only look at data, obviously you'll lack that context. Obviously data on, on its own can give, can give some context, especially now that we have um, expanded, you know, what we look at you know, with all the advanced statistics that we have now. Um, but you still have to actually look at film um, to, to give you some context about um, what the data is describing. Right. And I think that, um, you know, I was saying this to you the other day. I think that this sort of approach towards just looking at the stats and figuring that that gets you to a level of understanding that's essentially asymptotic to doing that plus watching film and watching yeah. watching games. Uh, I think this perception really has spawned out of um, how much analytics have transformed the game of baseball. Obviously stats tell, stats are a log of outcomes within a game. Uh, but those those outcomes don't don't capture um, all of the things that led up to, you know, a basket being scored, an assist being made, um, a turnover happening, a missed, a missed field goal. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's really important to note that the different situations are differentially, you know, different, different um, domains, I should say whether it's sports or economics or um, finances are differentially susceptible to being, to being captured at a deep level by statistics. And we're limited by the number of statistics that are actually, that, you know, are actually available to us. Um, baseball is a game that, you know, it's very much confined by the rule set um, such that there's only one way to score. There really is only one way to score in baseball. Um, you know, every player, every hitter is subjected to the same, um, to like a very confined set of conditions. Whereas, in basketball, there are really almost an infinite number of ways that a possession can unfold. And there's so many different things that can impact the quality of a shot, if you want to take the analogy of scoring. Um, so it's important to note that, you know, there's just a ton of, there's a ton of variables that are really hard to, to capture statistically in 
in basketball that make it unique compared to a game like, um, you know, like baseball, for instance, um, which is why it's really important. Um, and, we, you know, we keep on coming back to this, obviously, but that's why it's really important to be able to actually explain um, and think critically about what confounding variables could potentially be impacting the trends that we're seeing on the court. Exactly. Um, you know, from an individual, you touched on this, but at, a, at an individual player level, um, this concept is important to me because, you know, if I'm working with a player and I see that, you know, I have data about their three-point percentage. My, like, just intuitively, my, my instinct, honestly, is to, is to figure out, well, okay, why are they shooting that percentage? Um, and, um, you know, what um, goes into explaining why they shot that percentage is, is often what kinds of threes we're talking about. Um, because I mean, on average, it's, uh, we, we can probably agree that it's more difficult to shoot a three off the dribble than, than off the catch. Um, yeah. And, you know, it, it, it could be, you know, are we talking about, um, pulling up off the dribble where you're able to jump straight up and down, or are we talking about a fadeaway? Are we talking about spot ups where you're stationary or where you have to come off a screen and run at full speed? There's so much context that can be involved um, that can't fully be explained with data. We're getting better and better at it. And I'm, I'm always curious to see what direction, um, you know, analytics can go in because I think we're eventually going to get to the point where we're going to get so granular that like we can, I mean, we're be able we, to we adjust have, for, for all of these confounding variables. Right. I mean, where... I mean, look, we, we already have play type data on uh, the NBA site. You can easily just go onto NBA.com and look up uh, play type uh, data to see how efficient a player is at um, in, in spot up situations um, coming off screens um, off cuts we have all this data available, uh, but we had uh, Milo and I had a really interesting conversation about uh, what the play type data could potentially be missing, and it kind of it it revolved around uh, post ups mainly. Um, but we did we did talk about a couple other things, um, and uh, you know so so with post ups right if you if you examine the play type data of post ups. Um, you know, in, in the modern sort of, I don't like calling this a movement analytics because I, it's, it's nitpicky, but I don't, um, it, it kind of, uh, can be interpreted by some people when you, when you say the analytics movement, it can be interpreted as, you know, a very rigid philosophy as opposed to, right something that if, if interpreted correctly, correctly, um, quote unquote, um, you know, um, is, is just a matter of fact. It's not, it's not like, let's not frame it as like a rigid philosophy, but anyway, that's besides the point with, with regard to post-ups, we, we all know 
it's becoming becoming much less common um, in basketball period, not just in the NBA. And um, I, I think teams realize, I, I think, you know, the rationale behind that is that teams realize that um, just uh, at face value, at, at the very least at face value, um, you know, having a, a big volume of post-ups um, compared to other types of possessions like, um, you know, now having spacing, having players set up on the, on the, on the three-point line, you know, going five out or four out one in and creating offense out of that, um, provides generally provide, we, we found that, you know, it, it generally provides teams with, um, more, more efficient looks. Um, and you know, this can be, uh, this can be seen through the points per possession of post-ups compared to um, transition possessions, um, off-screen possessions, um, even isolation possessions. I think, I think in general, um, with, the, with the amount of players that are developing skill sets that, um, that some people re- refer to as like a heliocentric style where you have you know one or two players that are very good at creating offense for themselves and for their teammates uh is we're we're seeing is a better approach when when teams are when teams do have that spacing um but now i i'm sure milo has insight as to why the point looking at the points per possession at face value doesn't give us enough context behind the the additional value that post-up possessions uh can provide to teams right i'm glad that you you segued me into it like that because i was actually going to there's a there's a few things that that came to mind uh as you were talking that i that i wanted to respond to and the first one was um yeah i mean on just on the topic of points per possession like you were saying, um, you can't take everything at face value um, because like if, if you're going to compare um, two shooters, right? Like say you want to compare uh, Kobe Bryant to PJ Tucker. I don't think anyone would say that PJ Tucker is a better shooter than, than Kobe Bryant, but he shot significantly better from three um, than Kobe on his career, on you know, actually pretty similar volume. PJ Tucker shot 35.9% from three on his career on three attempts per game. Bryant shot 32.9 on 4.1 attempts per game. But I think we all understand intuitively and from watching the games that PJ Tucker was taking a lot of wide open corner threes that were where he was the beneficiary of another offensive player's gravity, a better offensive player's um, playmaking, uh, being able to, to draw in um, help defenders and create an open look for Tucker, who, you know, oftentimes was not considered to be, you know, a, a deadly offensive threat and as a result, got a lot of open looks. Whereas Bryant was, you know, especially if you go back to like the 2006, 2007 
years or even, you know, even some of the later years with Shaq where he really ramped up his aggression to 100. I mean, I think Bryant had a game where he hit like 11, 12 threes. Um, you know, he would take, he would catch the ball five feet back from the three point line on the right wing and just put it up with a hand in his, in his face, no hesitation. Um, either because his team was down or because, you know, he felt like he had a smaller defender on him and he could get a, a clear look at the basket. Um, shot selection matters a lot um, when you're looking at efficiency and, and the types of, um, you know, the way that you're getting into your shot. Like you said, are you coming like running hard off a, off a screen or off a pin down and just facing you know, the, the, towards the opposite side of the court, turning your body around, spinning in midair and fading away. Um, that's a lot more difficult than just standing still in the corner, catching a pass that's right in your shooting pocket and just going up and, and, and shooting. Yep, um, which is basically uh, Kobe versus PJ Tucker, right? Exactly. There. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just... Uh, I think about, you know, how, how um, this analytics thing is perceived by, I think the average NBA fan or, you know, even potentially um, players or former players and, and, and maybe, you know, old basketball lifers who are kind of skeptical of this whole influx of, of data and statistical analysis. Um, I think the best way of framing it is through the lens of the, the scientific method, not to, you know, make this out to be some like, like holy quest for enlightenment, but it, it really is, it really is not a, a rigid, um, set of rules or tenets that we're using to kind of guide us uh we're not this. saying we're not saying never post up we're not saying don't shoot mid-range attempts um it there's there's context involved the suns all right last year and and even now for as long as they're gonna have chris paul you're not gonna tell chris paul an all-time uh you know ultra efficient mid-range scorer to you know, yeah, dude, like just shoot threes and, and get to the rim. And if you don't do that, you just can't shoot like that. That's just, that's, there's not a lot of critical thinking going on because we recognize that if, when he gets in the mid range, um, he's not just a threat because of the potential for him shooting the ball. He's, um, he gets, he has gravity in those areas. And so when he gets in the mid range, he's able to create better passing opportunities yeah. or, or scoring opportunities for his teammates that other, um, uh, that, uh, you know, uh, other players, other, other point guards in the pick and roll that are just average at shooting in the mid range, you know, you, you replace Ricky Rubio with, with Chris Paul, for example. And yeah, Ricky Rubio is an amazing passer technically speaking right um but um he's not you know we're, we're 
able to see the contrast between Chris Paul, Chris Paul's ability to, to create for his teammates and Ricky Rubio's ability to do that in the same situation in the pick and roll, you know, being in the mid range area. Yeah. And I think you see with a lot of really high basketball IQ players and a lot of really efficient offensive players um, that they have a hierarchy um, that they're, that they're using to dictate their essentially their decision tree on a play-by-play basis. So, you know, the, the first, the first order on LeBron's shot high or play hierarchy, you know, he takes the ball down the court. They're not necessarily calling a set play for him. Um, It's kind of his prerogative to dictate the offense. Obviously the best result of that possession is for, is for LeBron to either get to the rim and be able to create a dunk or a layup either, or, you know, or for him to get to the rim um, and dish it off to, you know, either one of his big men um, for an easy finish or to, you know, a backdoor cutter who is able to, um, you know, obviously to get a, to get a high efficiency look at the basket or draw a foul. Um, and if, you know, if he can't get that, maybe he can, you know, th- the, the first order is always to penetrate the defense, right? because from there you can either, you can draw and help defenders. You can either finish at the basket or you can kick out to a good shooter for, you know, a, a high efficiency three-point look. Um, yeah. If you can't get that result, then you're going to, you're going to look at the next option in that decision tree, right? You're going to look at, um, you know, I'm going to pass it to another player on the wing and then maybe, you know, they're going to, they're going to initiate the offense in a different way. Maybe they can attack a closeout. Maybe they call for a screen. Um, maybe I'm going to move without the ball, try to get myself open for, for a shot. And if the play really devolves and, and breaks down, that's when I'm going to, I'm going to go into my ISO package and, and see what kind of a shot I, I can create. And, and a lot of times that's going to be a mid range shot. And, you know, if you're, you know, the, the key point here is that you always have to look at what the decision tree is for a player at any given moment in time. You can't just look at, at these stats in a vacuum and say, oh, well, Chris Paul took 10 mid-range shots this game. Um, that's what he needs to improve going forward. Well, you have to look at like what his alternatives were in each of those plays. So maybe, you know, maybe he... you know, the shot clock was winding down, you know, he has the ball at the end of a possession and he's isolating on the wing or at the top of the key. And, you know, he's not able to just force a three pointer. It's likely to get blocked. He's not able to, to really just blow by his man and get to the basket. He's not, he doesn't have that level of of quickness and let alone finishing ability at the rim anymore. Yeah. Um, So the most high efficiency shot that he can create at that point in time is a mid-range pull-up or or a step back and if he's converting that um you know at a at nearly a 50 percent rate which he is right now um that's 
you know, that's an outstanding result for a possession that otherwise would have ended in a, you know, a Cameron Payne heave or, or just, or just some, what were the alternatives? Yeah. Yeah. What, what were the alternatives to, to the play that, you know, that a player made um, in any given situation? And we, we, uh, I alluded to this about Chris Paul and, you know, uh, and, you know, you're, you're talking about um, knowing the alternatives. He, we know he's a prolific mid-range scorer. And we've been talking about how we need to use statistics and um, actually watch what's going on in the games to understand how these statistics are coming about. Um, when you look at the play type data, like when I brought up the post-up example, um, and like, uh, pick and roll ball handler data, um, the points per possession that is listed that those efficiency numbers, um, only apply to when that the possession ends, uh, with them taking, taking a shot. The shot, right? It doesn't include, um, opportunities that they may have created for their teammates. And that is so huge. That's such a critical, um, piece of contextual information um that we're currently missing but i think again we're i'm I'm pretty sure eventually we're gonna have that data available but in the meantime that's why uh watching film is critical to to actually get that context and it's still going to be critical in the future because data gives us objective proxies for how teams and, and player and individual players are performing. Um, but again, you know, we've already mentioned this a few times. We have to know how, what, what led to that, what led to the outcomes that we're seeing in the data. Right. Um, yeah. And, and a lot of times that, that comes down to being able to draw a relationship between the way that a play developed and the outcome of that play. Um, so for example, you know, if, a it's, it's hard for the data um, or for a computer, I should say, to be able to recognize that LeBron James driving to the basket and kicking out to, um, to you know, a, a guy um, at the left wing who then makes the extra pass to an open shooter in the corner that that shot was created by by LeBron's drive and 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 you know he was the one who actually should be credited with with the assist even though obviously it's it's the player that passes to the shooter that's credited with the assist so you know it's 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 those types of things that we need to eventually have systematic ways of understanding who the creator was on a possession um, and you know how you know, looking at, at, at play type data, um, there's other factors like offensive rebounding, perhaps, you know, shots that come out of certain play types. It's, you know, something that was pointed out by, by um, yeah, by Coach Nick um, is that, you know, maybe shots that are taken closer to the basket um, have a higher chance of, you know, 
being rebounded by the offense because the, you know, the shot isn't bouncing all the way out to the three point line. And therefore there's, there's some extra value there offensively um, towards, you know, setting up guys in the post who, and then, you know, having, you know, having additional offensive rebounders on the court um, when you're, when you're running those types of plays in order to maximize the value of them. And when you look at team efficiency, um, you, this is often portrayed through looking at a team's points per a hundred possessions because it adjusts for, for pace, right? We're, we're looking at what, how many points a team is able to score in a hundred possessions. And, but what happens is when a team, you know, uh, gets, uh, it's generally a good way to, to analyze team efficiency, but um, you know, let's say you have a team that get that as an outlier, they get a lot of offensive rebounds um, that adds possessions um, because uh, you had a shot attempt, which counts as a possession that led to a rebound. And presumably that person, that player is trying to put the ball back or set up, uh, you know, some other form of offense. Um, and because, because that adds a possession, uh, which was which was um, preceded by a missed attempt, um, can you know that, 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 that can get dampened. missed in yeah. yeah that can get missed in the points per hundred possession data. So yeah, that actually again, looks worse from the perspective of of that team's efficiency in the data than it actually is on the court because the outcome is the same. You score yeah. without the without the opposing team having an offense. Exactly. Possession. Yeah. Exactly. Without them having an extra possession. Yeah you're at it like we all i mean it's obvious if you have more opportunities to score the ball than the other team you're inherent you inherently have more of an advantage over that team um so just to wrap everything up i hope um you know we we were able to um you know articulate our perspective about how to look at the game of basketball and to use analytics and film to understand team dynamics um, and individual performance and that and how those things can inform, like I said, I'm a player development coach, how those things can inform um, people like me or, or head coaches for, for basketball teams or players. Uh, we want, you know, players to potentially get past the, uh, you know, if you, if you maybe uh, uh, nerd, nerd out about stuff like this and you play, uh, we think uh, we think it could it could help you to um, to get a really granular look at all of these concepts. Appreciate you guys tuning in. We've already been talking a lot offline um, about potential topics that we want to cover in the future, and we can't wait to have those conversations and have you guys tune in. Support us wherever you uh, are viewing this or listening to this. Um, we're gonna have try to have this on on. Uh, multitude of streaming platforms and yeah catch you guys next time peace out